0: So, again, thank you for coming and joining in the sitting group tonight. This, uh, this summer, um, particularly because we're in the middle of a very polarized um, time politically, um, and tonight, of course, is the beginning of the Democratic Convention. I listened to a little bit of it um, on the radio. Um, it seemed like it would be helpful to go back to some very fundamental and universal teachings in kind of difficult times. Those can be the most important. And uh, to look for some underlying principles that are not partisan, that don't take one side or the other, but that really speak to the nature of our wisdom heart. And so the teachings for this summer, which we started to talk about last week, are uh, called, in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes they're called the perfections of a Buddha, or another way of saying it is the teachings on one's own Buddha nature. And last week, uh, for those who were here, we talked about the quality, the first of these innate or wonderful perfections, um, called generosity. Um, And in particular, we talked about how we want to be generous if we can, how natural it is to our being and our heart and our community, how interconnected we are. And then there were a few little practices and exercises for those who wanted to play with them during the week to kind of experiment with and examine your own impulses toward generosity and care and service to others. Um, And again, it seems so critical in these times to listen. This is from Albert Einstein, who writes, More and more I come to value charity and love, love of others above everything else. All our lauded technological progress, our very civilization can at times seem like an axe in the hands of a pathological criminal. (laughs) So without some underlying uh, wisdom and compassion, other kinds of development uh, are are really not going to make a difference to us. The quality of awakening is really a reconnection with our basic goodness with the Buddha nature that we are born with. For generosity, remember the poem of Rumi's last week, walking out of the treasury building I feel generous. Remembering that we have so much to offer each of us in our own way, generosity comes naturally. The second of these qualities of the innate goodness or beauty of the heart is the perfection of virtue or integrity. Last week I described how the stories, the old kind of mythology from the Buddhist tradition, tells that the Buddha practiced these or cultivated these perfections or these qualities of generosity and patience and compassion and integrity and uh, truthfulness and so forth over four immensities in a hundred thousand mahakalpas of lifetimes. Remember the image of the mountain that was worn away by the silk scarf of the bird. There is another image in the, in the text that describes the cultivation or the practice of perfections, imagining a canyon as, as large as the Grand Canyon, seven miles deep Grand Canyon, I guess, I don't know how many thousand feet deep it is, but a huge, huge canyon, um, uh, wide and deep, And every hundred years, um, a person walks by and throws in one mustard seed. Mustard seeds are these tiny little seeds. When the canyon is filled up, that is the description of how long one mahakalpa lasts. (laughs) So a hundred thousand of those practicing patience uh, and practicing virtue and practicing generosity and so forth, and then you become a Buddha in these stories. Now, you hear that, and it's a little discouraging, actually. At least, I don't know how it sounds to you. It seems actually impossible in Earth time. And the reason that it's impossible is that this kind of image is not meant to be taken in our normal uh, framework. It is actually a mythological image. It's an archetypal image that says, when we understand these principles, they operate not for a moment, or a day, or a year, or an election cycle, or the cycle of a particular political period, but that they are eternal, they are timeless, they are universal. The retreat that just ended yesterday, that was taught by my uh, good old colleague and friend Joseph Goldstein and, and others, Michelle McDonald and other teachers, one of the assistants in, in the retreat, who is in Joseph's teacher training program, is a man that I've known now for hmm, almost 20 years, 15 or 20 years, who's a Sri Lankan man named Damaruwan. Um, and he's quite an interesting fellow. Uh, I heard about him through one of my teachers, Monogarka Manindra, when um, uh, Manindra said, I met this remarkable young two-year-old boy in Sri Lanka... I said, oh. He said, yeah. He got up in the middle of the night um, as this little boy, just as he was learning to speak, and then would sit on his bed and start doing chants from the Buddhist uh, texts of the Abhidhamma, Buddhist psychology, the 108 states of consciousness, and the 37 factors of enlightenment, and all these chants that one would do in a great monastery if you were really quite learned. But as a two-year-old boy, it seemed to shock his parents a little bit, and they didn't understand. So they called me as the teacher, and I visited him. And sure enough, he was doing this, and we had these conversations. And he looked like a two-year-old boy, but then he s- then he said, you know, he wanted to go somewhere. So his parents and I intuitively um, started to take him to visit monasteries, and we took him to uh, one of the great monasteries, Anuradhapura, one of the ancient two-thousand-year-old temples in. Sri Lanka, and he got so excited and he dragged our hands and he said, oh, this was my hut and this is where my teacher lived and here were the great masters who lived over here and there. And As he grew up, he remembered more of this, um, just like the Tibetan llamas, uh, tulkus and so forth. So we were having these conversations about Sri Lanka and the U.S. and, you know, difficulties and so forth, and it was so refreshing to talk with the Ruan because he had this kind of long-term perspective. He said, yeah, you know, a century here or there, things get difficult for human beings, and then they get a little better another time. And, you know, looking at it in this mysterious way for, from the perspective that is vast of here we are on this earth. Nobody really knows how we got here. Um, and this may well not be your first time. In fact, you'll see. You'll be surprised, right? <laughs> So underlying this great mystery of coming into a human body and being incarnate, how do we use this life and what really matters, as Einstein speaks about? And one of the threads that we know in our heart, no matter what circumstance or time um, or culture that matters, is called the blessing or the perfection of integrity or virtue. Now, in modern times, um, relativity rules values are all relative you know, cultural relativity what's right and wrong depends on which community and how people look at it but actually that kind of relativity without some clarity of what's wise and what's virtuous it's like having a boat without a rudder, there's really no way to steer um, I've talked about and there'll be stories I use tonight that some of you have heard before but They're some of my favorite stories, so um, you can listen again. They're still good. Um, (laughs) There was an interesting, uh, a a psychological experiment that's done um, often in Psych 101, in the beginning in university of um, studying psychology on perception, in which uh, a student is called, student, victim, whatever, is called to the front of the class um, as a demonstration. And in the front of the class are three buckets, One is filled with ice water, with a lot of ice, so it's really cold. One in the middle is neutral temperature, and then the one on the other side is filled with very hot water, just so hot that you can barely put your hand in it. And the student is instructed to come and plunge his or her hands in the cold and hot bucket for as long as they can stand it, which is usually like 30 seconds. Okay. And then, 30 seconds later, they're instructed to take their hands out and put them in the bucket in the center. And immediately, as the psych professor knows and, and waits for this moment, their, their facial expression changes because it's so peculiar. Their hands are in the same bucket, but one feels the water to be really hot, and the other feels the water to be, oh, refreshingly cold. And yet their hands are touching, and the, their body can't quite make sense of it. So what this experiment does, obviously it's, you know, it's pretty simple, is we can see that our perceptions can skew the circumstances. There we have this sense data, and yet depending how we look at it, well, it seems one way from this perspective and another way from that perspective. The teachings of the natural integrity of the heart speak to something more fundamental than that. And we really have to look at it in our own lives in lives, in little and big ways. Is it okay to cheat a bit on taxes? Is it okay to drive over the speed limit? I talked about getting my speeding ticket a couple of weeks ago, for those who missed that. right? Oh, I'm, I don't drive as bad as the really fastest drivers, right? I'm, I'm better than most offenders, maybe, you know? Is it okay to have affairs if you're quiet about it and don't tell your partner, right? Or how about just how much gas we use, what kind of car we drive, or tobacco, or how about using redwood, you know, for the decks and for our houses and so forth when there aren't that many redwood trees left? Or how about investing in the stock market in companies that also happen or funds that, t- that sell weapons worldwide? Um, Or how about insider trading? Everybody else is doing it, I got a tip, I might as well use it, you know? I mean, what matters? And what is the result of that? Another interesting little psychological story, there is a state hospital in Illinois, and one of the psychologists there decided to do a study, um, because it's along a tollway, and the toll booth where you come out at the state hospital is a is a small side road, um, so there's no one there in the toll booth. Instead, it's a, a collection place for 50 cents, and either you throw it in or you speed through the light um, and don't throw it in um, if you do it illegally. Um, and so this psychologist became really curious about the staff at the hospital and what the relationship was between the the way they treated the toll booth and the rest of their life. So he did a kind of secret study, he, he mounted a, an unseen video camera by the toll booth and collected data on which of the therapists, the psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers and so forth, paid their tolls and who didn't, right? And then he correlated that to, with their um, therapeutic results in the hospital that was scored, I guess, I don't know what instrument he used, but in some way, maybe it was by uh, colleagues and so forth, there was some way in which they looked at the success. Um, And the result of his study was that the people who paid their tolls had a considerably higher success rate in the healing of their patients. So I'll let you think about that, you know. Because what we're talking about, whether you're a teacher or a business person or a healer or, or a, you know, a landscape gardener or an artist, we're really talking about the soul level, to use another language, the soul level of life. And what is true integrity in our life and how does it affect us and others around us? It is said that integrity is the adornment of kings and queens. It is like the crown, the crown chakra. And um, whether you meet elders from Africa or um, elders from the Native American culture or from India or the Mayan culture or the Middle East, it doesn't matter. When you meet a wise elder, they all know what integrity means and what what an expression of the awakened heart it is. Who harm none, says the Buddha, but serve that which is just, that which is true, that which is good. And there's all these stories in the, in the previous birth tales of the Buddha, of the Buddha being tempted in different ways. Um, and always in the end coming, the story, resolution of the story, is that the, the integrity of the Buddha-to-be is such that he will not steal or lie or do anything that compromises his integrity, and in the end, this is to the benefit, even if it costs his life, to the benefit of himself and other beings. So one hears these kinds of stories, and then you say, well, how do I measure up? How do I put this into effect? I mean, here's the Buddha, in certain of these stories, actually giving up his life, rather than telling an untruth. And what it speaks to is the the power of virtue, integrity. It used to be that a man or a woman took an oath, not lightly, that we would stand by our word or that we would stand by our character and that that was really what mattered for a person. Um, And when it's lost, when we've lost it or when our community has lost it, we need somehow to reclaim that integrity. Uh, a woman, a friend of mine, who I admire very much, named Jane Middleton Maas, uh, uh, works as a psychologist, and she is a Native American as well, um, Ojibwe, Ashinaabe, and does a lot of healing work in the Native communities. And she talked about the necessity of reclaiming integrity in, and told the story of one community where she worked, where in uh, Canada, in the south of Canada, um, where, as in the U.S., for a couple of hundred years, the Indians were forbidden to practice their religion, were, for the most part, forbidden to speak their own language. and uh, The children were taken from their parents in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and, and earlier and put into state-run schools to turn them into um, non-Indians, basically. They were beaten if they spoke their Indian language. They were educated in a white way. And what happened is that it devastated the community. If you can imagine your children being taken away from you. um, And there was already devastation in the culture from the loss of lands and the loss of the traditional way of life. So she came into this community that was full of people who were uh, dispirited, um, hopeless, depressed, alcoholic, and so forth, and did a healing ritual in, in conjunction with the elders. And the healing ritual involved first t- getting all the stories, and then finally bringing the whole community in three circles together. And in the middle community of the circle was the young children, who knew there was something wrong in their community but didn't know why. In the second ring around them were their parents. And then around them in the last ring was the elders. And she had each of the groups tell their story. The parents um, told the story of being... No, the grandparents started first. They told the story of what it was like to have their children taken from them um, by the state when their children were six or eight years old um, and how it completely devastated their lives. Um, And then the next circle inside the, the, the parents talked about what it was like to be ripped out of their village and culture and taken off to these terrible schools. And it was really important for the young children in the community to hear what had happened to everyone. And once the stories were told and everyone wept, as you can imagine, for the tragedy of it, and remember, it wasn't until President Jimmy Carter that um, Indians, Native Americans in this country, were allowed to practice their religion, 1976. It was illegal for Indians to practice their religion until 1976. So uh, when the stories were told and everyone could feel the depth of the sorrow and the loss and the tragedy, then the elders said, the way that we can make this right to you who are the children in the center, the new uh, generation, is by making offerings to you. This is our tribal ritual as a way to heal the trauma. And each of us here um, will offer you a gift. And so one of the old women said, I stopped making baskets, one of the grandmothers, 60 years ago, when I saw what happened to our tribe, I just gave up. And now, speaking to the children, I will teach you how to make our baskets. And then another one of the parents stood up and he said, um, the gift that I will give you is that I will stop drinking. The day my children were taken away, I started to drink, and I've been drinking for 40 years. And now it's time to stop, and I will stop drinking. And then someone else stood up and said that I have sold the things from my grandparents and artifacts of our people, and I will no longer do this. And someone else stood up and said, my door will always be open to you as children. And each person who stood offered back into the community a kind of integrity, and honesty and virtue and that was the only medicine that could heal these children. My teacher Ajahn Chah in the monastery, the forest monastery, and the other teachers I had loved to talk about virtue, loved to talk about integrity, the joy of integrity, the peaceful heart, the beauty, the sanity that comes to the world when we remember to live with this kind of uprightness of heart. And all spiritual life rests on it. Otherwise, it's like a boat, you know, you get in a rowboat while the boat, the line is still tied to the dock and you can row as much as you want, you're just not going to get anywhere. Or, kind of in the simple way I like to talk about it, it's really hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work very well. In fact, there isn't any spiritual life without a basis of integrity. All the other states and visions and insights and so forth are worthless, worthless if we live a deluded life. So there are three levels of remembering this virtue in ourselves. The first, which is called entering the human realm, is limiting our harm. First, do no harm. Refraining from those activities that would harm another living being. And I remember that one of the sheriffs who patrols in this part of Marin um, used to like to come and park in the Spirit Rock parking lot because it was off the highway and he could take a little break and, and so forth. And so he was there and we were quite happy that he was there and used this place. That seems like a fine way to do it. Um, and Ruth Dennison, who's one of our elders and wonderful teachers, she saw him there when she was here one day. And of course, being the the elder who doesn't sort of make any boundaries between her teaching and the way she lives. She immediately (laughs) charged out in the parking lot went over to the sheriff's car, knocked on his window, and he rolled out, yes, can I help you? Yes, she said, yes, darling, I just want to tell you how happy we are you are here. (laughs) First of all, that you are really welcome. This is a place, we love to have the sheriff come. And also, I want to tell you that we are working to help you, she said, in her German accent, because we are teaching people not to kill and steal and lie and so on. (laughs) We are doing the same work you are, and I just want you to know that we are in the same business. (laughs) Now, Sheriff was quite pleased, actually, of course, (laughs) to be treated in this respectful way. So when one goes traditionally into the temples and the monasteries in Asia, the very first practice that one's given is the taking of the precepts, the training of the heart, to agree not to cause harm. And there are very simple universal practices. Every tradition has them. The first one is simply not to kill. Um, Even little beings as best you can to avoid harm. A bug crawls over the paper, leave him be, we need all the readers we can get. (laughs) It's from Lloyd Reynolds, this wonderful calligrapher. If you notice, beings don't like it, large or small, and so there is a practice that one undertakes to minimize harm. I remember somebody asking the Dalai Lama about well what about shooting horses to put them out of their misery and he just shook his head and he said I wouldn't do that so quickly you know you wouldn't shoot shoot a child would you do what you can to take care of every being and i really saw it in the way that the dalai lama lived in the world so the first act of non-harming is integrity is simply not to hurt or kill other beings as best as we can the second traditional training is to not steal. It creates paranoia. I mean, if you live in a culture where there's a lot of stealing and there's, you know, um, fear of losing things and uh, um, guards around and walls with broken glass on the top and all the kind of insanity that comes when people don't respect the belongings of others, tremendous suffering. In the monastery, as a monk, it was so important, this particular practice, that it was said that if we, as a robe monastic, took something worth more than five cents, worth more than a nickel, that didn't belong to us, we were out of the monk's order or the nun's order forever, for the rest of this life anyway, for this, this incarnation. It was so important that we live in a way that didn't take that which didn't belong to us, and that that was trustworthy in us, so that people could respect us and that we could respect ourselves. Not to kill, not to steal, not to lie or speak falsely, not to gossip, slander, use words, not to use words in a way that cause harm to other beings. And gossip, in the simplest way, I... I sometimes tell about Joseph Goldstein making this practice where he said, I'm going to experiment not even doing positive gossip. I'm just not going to talk about other people that I know when they're not present. I'll do that for a month and see what happens. He said, and what amazed him was to find that 90% of his speech was eliminated. (laughs) It means to take care with words and not cause disharmony, not slander, not lie. So I like this story. My daughter gave it to me. She said John invited his mother over to dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd long been suspicious of a relationship between John and his roommate. This only made her more curious, and over the course of the evening, watching them interact she was just thinking about it, and John said, I know what you're thinking, Mom, but I assure you, Carrie and I are just roommates. Mm-hmm. A week later, Carrie came to John and said, ever since your mother came to dinner, it's funny, I've been able to unable to find the beautiful silver um, soup ladle that we have. You don't suppose she did something with it, do you? Well, I'll email her, he said, John. So he wrote, dear mother, I'm not saying you had anything to do with it. I'm not saying you did or didn't, but it's odd that the... Soup ladle's been missing since you were here for dinner. Later in the day, he got an email back from his mother. Dear John, uh, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie, (laughs) and I'm not saying that you don't sleep with her, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. (laughs) Love, mother.
1: (laughs) It's entitled
0: Don't Lie to Your Mom, right? (laughs) So, not only does it create suffering and disharmony and we lose our own sense of integrity, but they find out.
1: It doesn't work.
0: Not to kill, not to steal, not to speak untruthfully, not to cause harm through the misuse of sexuality, adultery, the kind of pain that we know we can cause. And whenever I teach this, because we all know its power, I I usually ask, okay, how many people in the room have made idiots of yourself in regards to sexuality? Don't bother, right? (laughs) We all know the answer, okay? It's such a great power in human life. It can be, and it can be associated with what is um, beautiful, or it can cause tremendous suffering. So this practice says, I will not cause harm to myself, another, a second, or third, or fourth person, through the misuse of sexuality. And then to refrain from abusing intoxicants, alcohol and drugs. And all these are tricky. Does that mean you can't take a glass of wine? Some people interpret it that way. But the meaning, as you translate it, even the translation isn't exactly clear. It says not to lose consciousness, not to lose awareness through intoxication. Does that mean none at all? Well, who are you? And what's your experience of it? But we do know that there are 10 million drug addicts and 20 million alcoholics and the majority of child abuse, the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of home fires. The the amount of suffering, 50 million people in the families of alcoholics and drug addicts. Enormous potential for causing harm and yet also a potential in the other way, in refraining, of sparing suffering. So this is the first level of integrity, simply to look at our life and undertake the trainings to not cause harm to other beings. It's basic humanity. You're not considered a human being in Buddhist cosmology until you keep these basic practices. As Spencer Tracy said, just know your lines and don't bump into the furniture. That was kind of as an actor. it's, It's that simple. It's the same in this way. If you want to have a spiritual life, this is the bottom line for it. And if you think about it, you know, all this political and international stuff and the terrible things that are conflict between nations and so forth, imagine if even one precept was kept on this earth by humans. Even half a precept. (laughs) You know, not killing just people. Forget about animals, you know. You couldn't even imagine how the earth would be if we didn't kill one another. It would be so different. Or imagine... Not lying. First of all, the media would shut down, right? <laughs> it would. you know. Or imagine not stealing. I mean, it's, it's almost unthinkable. Um, this is how powerful it is. Powerful enough to change the world. The earth is too small a star, and we too brief vid- visitors upon it for anything to matter more than our integrity. So that's the first level, just refraining from causing harm. The second, which is a more beautiful expression of our natural heart, is the cultivating of compassion, the expression of compassion as a form of virtue. If you stand in the rowboat and call out, come here, come hither, other shore, you don't get very far. The idea is not just to refrain from harm, but to see that we're all in the same boat. And this is a wonderful kind of inner empowerment. Lewis Thomas, a naturalist and essayist, um, puts it this way. He says, The driving force in nature on this kind of a planet with this sort of biosphere is cooperation. The most inventive and novel of all schemes in nature and perhaps the most significant in determining the great progress and events in evolution, is symbiosis, which is simply cooperative behavior carried to its extreme. Life is based on intercooperation, it is how it works. So, with this perspective, virtue or integrity becomes a connectedness, and act of compassion, and we start to see as a kind of beauty and inner, inner empowerment that we're in it together. How we care for our brothers, sisters, all other creatures, how we drive, how we use water, how we respond to the homeless, how we face the suffering of racism in the culture, the suffering of injustice. So then not to kill in the monastery, not only do we refrain from killing, but there's this whole spirit of reverence for life. This little bug comes, and you know, if it's in danger, you want to help the little bug. There's this beautiful thing that happens where you join a community that cares for all the forms of life around it. And I remember being with the Dalai Lama at one meeting, and there was this, spider that was kind of crawling up the chair where he wasn't onto his robe. And he got a little piece of paper, you know, as people can do and put it aside. And then he changed his whole teaching that he was doing. And he said, you know, we can learn so much. The patience of the, uh, or or the the strength of the ants and the, the patience and the artistry of the spiders. We think we're better than all these creatures, but each of them has qualities that we don't have. And if we really look, there's something to respect and learn from every single being. You know, And here he was playing with the bugs, basically, and enjoying them and expressing this interconnectedness, this beauty of reverence for life. Because we are brothers and sisters with other creatures. We are woven in a single garment of destiny, as Martin Luther King says. And here Chief Seattle reminds us, What is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone... Man would die from great loneliness of spirit, for whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. And there is this genuine soul connection, heart connection with life itself beyond our own body and species. And to cultivate a care for this world and the life in it is the most beautiful thing. And in the same way, to not steal... Becomes a respect for the earth and a concern for using the things of the earth wisely. Because you don't own them anyway, really. You are, as it's been said, just accountants in the firm, right? You get to count them and have them for a while. You borrow it. And then what do you do with it? You have to give it back. Right? Remember that? That's how it works. So then, to use what is right, you know, and in the Zen monasteries, there's a famous story of this abbot in Kyoto who was went to the kitchen where the a new cook was working, and they'd been given some vegetables in the morning offering. And he saw that the cook wasn't using the whole of the carrot or the, you know, the whole of the parsnip and cut it cut off too much and had thrown it into the garbage, which was the little stream behind the, you know, behind the kitchen in the meditation hall, and there he was running down the stream and pulling out the used parts of the vegetable and dragging them, dragging them back into the kitchen, saying, no, 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 you have to trim this more carefully and closely so that we respect everything that is given to us. It is a great gift. But here we live in this kind of blazing consumer culture that says, well, everything, use it up, and then there'll be more. doesn't really work that way, and we know it in our heart in some way of kind of deep integrity. One of the people I admire a lot, um, Helena Norberg-Hodge, who has done a project in Ladakh, which is on the edge of Tibet, the Tibetan culture. She talks about going into the villages there 20, 30 years ago where there was a beautiful integration of the monasteries and the farms and the um, schools in a kind of united way and asking people how they felt about their lives. And people said, oh, we are so blessed. We have the kind of abundance of community and enough food and and the cycles of water enough in this high mountain area that everything works fine in our spiritual teachings. And then um, 10, 15, 20, 25 years passed. They got television. They got radio in the cities. They started to get all the kind of modern things of modern culture. And as her project continued and she interviewed people again in her study, people would shake their heads and they'd say, oh, we're so poor, we don't have anything, you know, we're such an impoverished culture and people were leaving their farms and moving into these shanties in the city and so forth. They had exactly the same thing that they had 20 or 30 years before, but they'd watch the ads on TV and then all of a sudden the life that they had didn't seem to matter in the same way. Men and women are free to choose anything in economic societies except one thing, to opt out. The ultimate treason is to prefer to neither produce nor consume wealth. Cultures that do not believe in economics and the sale of goods and people must be developed out of existence. Roads, schools, and hospitals are the preferred weapons of destruction. So it really makes you think a little bit, what does it mean to not steal? What does it mean to care for the things and the fabric of life in this world? And to look and speak up when we see what seems unjust. As William Faulkner put it, some things you must always be unable to bear Some things you must never stop refusing to bear injustice, outrage, dishonor, racism, shame, no matter how young you are or how old you are, not for fame or cash, your picture in the paper or money in the bank, just refuse to bear them. And so there comes this sense of what is our integrity? when we cultivate a care for reverence for life, respect for the things of the world. And then it's not just not lying when we use our words, but to speak that which is true and helpful to the world. As the Buddha says, In due season will I speak, not out of season. Truthfully will I speak, not with falsehood. Gently will I speak. And to the profit or benefit of others will I speak, not to their loss. And with kindly intent will I speak. So that one's words, which have tremendous power, shift not only from refraining, speaking that which is false, but actually using one's words to speak from the heart. Which means that we have to be in touch with ourself and our integrity and what we most deeply care about to sow harmony instead of disharmony, to awaken others with our words. Sexuality, again, there comes a kind of reverence, not just not harming, but seeing the sacredness of it. Eduardo Galliano, as a poet, says, the church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says the body is good business the body says, I am a fiesta. (laughs) There is something really beautiful about eros, love, sexuality, our connection, and it can be associated, yes, with um, greed and with aggression and with the harm that we can cause for one another, but it also can be associated with communion, with respect, with care for one another. It can bring us to uh, a real reverence and awakening in our life and connection with others. So again, it says we can use this with beauty, with integrity. And finally, it's not just to refrain from abusing intoxicants, but to do that which nourishes and awakens our spirit. Silence, walks in the mountains, listening to the music that awakens your soul, connecting with community, the sacredness that you can bring, the opposite of intoxicating yourself, de-intoxicating yourself from the culture, de-hypnotizing yourself. Zhuang Su says, ancient Chinese sage, a drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He is not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out. Ideas of life, death, fear, and the like cannot penetrate his breast, and so he does not suffer from contact with objective existence. If such security is to be got from wine, How much more is it to be got from resting in the Tao? And so we begin to see that our virtue is really an expression of reverence for life, a care. And at this level, we know that life is complicated. But our intention, the intention of the heart, is not to harm, to care for all beings as best we can, to bring beauty to the earth. And this then brings us to the highest level of virtue called adhisila, or inherent or awakened virtue, the discovery of virtue as our essence. When fear of death, insecurity, self-interest, when those things drop away, and they do, we all know this, when there are things that really matter to us, and we are connected with our soul, if you will, then there is a quality that shines From the heart like none other. Martin Luther King, who says, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way, come what may. And this is the benevolent king or queen, this is the quality of virtue that shines when we are connected with our spirit, with our soul. It's beautiful. I saw this in a temple in Thailand years ago. I went to visit with the wife of the American ambassador. We went together, I was a monk, and um, she was a very devoted Buddhist practitioner, um, to a monastery that was the largest Um, drug treatment center in Thailand, and every ten days into this monastery would come three to five hundred people who would go through drug treatment. Um, And it was the most successful drug treatment place in Southeast Asia. They had a rate that something like seventy-five or eighty percent of the people went through their program and stopped using and didn't go back. And it was interesting, you know, how did they do that? Did they teach them to meditate? We asked the abbot. He said, absolutely not. You know, they, they can barely pay attention, you know, to who they are, but much less close their eyes and meditate. They're not fit for that yet. Yes, we teach them the precepts. Yes, we teach them some basic practices. And they, the, the abbot had been a Thai narcotics agent who met an old woman that said, I have a better way for you to work with these people than just arresting them and throwing them in prison. I will teach you if you're willing, but you have to become a monk. So he did and learned all the herbal medicine. And he had this whole program in which they were given a medicine that was so foul they threw up. It was kind of a purgative for three or four days that just cleansed their body, made them forget that they were you know, detoxing because it was so intense in itself. And then there was this whole program of purification. And they really looked new when they came out at the end. It was quite amazing. But you looked at it, and it clearly wasn't just the medicine, and it wasn't just the program of them coming in together. What felt most critical in it was the abbot himself. He not only took the 227 precepts that a monk takes to guide their life of not killing and stealing and living in a really honorable way, but he had added 50 more to them, including never riding in a... um, car or a truck or some you know modern vehicle so when he needed to talk to someone in Bangkok which was 110 miles away he just walked he took his bowl and he walked there and then he walked back he was like this great big tree and he sat down and what it seemed underneath all of it was that his virtue and his integrity was so great that it was stronger than their addiction the people who came in met something that was bigger than their need for their drugs. And he sat with them every day, talked to them, taught them, what, stayed with them as they went through this process, and it's as if there was some transmission of being from this great heart to rekindle that spirit in the others. And this is really what Adi Sila, what innate virtue is. It's so beautiful, and we want to do it. It's in us. Um, our Buddha nature wants to shine in this way, to be connected with life, because we are. Again, Thomas Merton, who writes, saints are what they are, not because of their holiness, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. The saints are admirable, not because of their holiness, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible them to admire everyone else it gives them a clarity of compassion and virtue that is unshakable and it's such a beautiful thing there's a kind of inexhaustible quality to a pure heart and to a virtue a kind of blessing and we're tested all the time on the roads in our family in the political spheres and in the environment you know i got a call several years ago from a friend of mine, um, Ajahn Sulak, who's one of the great activists in Thailand, uh, who's done a great deal of organizing to protect the last of the um, teak forests and the rainforests, to protect the tribal people in the mountains of Thailand, to speak up for democracy. And he was thrown in prison for a number of years. Um, uh, It was said that he had defamed the king for the crime of less majesty because he said that the king wasn't standing up to the uh, corrupt generals who were running the country, which is a terrible thing in Thailand to say anything negative about the king. Um, But he's actually a relative of the king, and he was just telling it like it was. So I got this telegram, could I speak up and get organized people to help get Sulak out of prison? And then I realized I love Thailand. I love the country and the people there. And I go very often or regularly and receive teachings and feel very connected with the monasteries. And if I were to do this, they might not give me a visa. I might not be able to go back. You know, I would lose my connection with that country. So what should I do, you know? should I? But of course, Sulak has such virtue and such integrity, there wasn't really a question. Okay, well, maybe... He's in prison, and maybe I don't get to go back to Thailand. And we do get tested, and, you know, we'll answer it in different ways. We get tested with the smallest creatures in our house and with the largest, you know, insane political situations. Your care for your virtue is your treasure. The scent of sandalwood and rose bay and jasmine travels as far as the wind will take it, says the Buddha but the scent of virtue rises even to the gods. Now, I don't mean to make some great ideal about it, but rather to remind us of its beauty, of how it feels. And so, one more story tonight. Abbot Anastasius, this is from the Christian Desert Fathers of almost 2,000 years ago, Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment which was worth 18 gold coins (coughs) and had in it both Old and New Testament. And once a certain young brother came to visit him and seeing the book made off with it. So the day when Abbot Anastasius went to read his book, found it was gone, he realized that the young brother had taken it. But he didn't send after him to inquire about it for fear that the brother might lie and add perjury to his theft. Well, the brother went down into the nearby city in Alexandria to sell the book, and the price he asked was 16 gold coins. The buyer said, Give me the book that I might find out whether it's worth that much. And with that, the buyer took the book to the holy abbot Anastasius and said, Father, take a look at this book. Tell me whether you think I ought to buy it for 16 gold pence. Is it worth that much? The abbot held it in his hands dearly, and said, yes, this is a fine book. It is worth at least that much. So the buyer went back to the brother, pulled out the gold coins, and said, here is your money. I showed the book to Abbot Anastasius, and he said, it is a fine book worth at least this much. (laughs) And the younger brother asked, was that all he said? Did he make no other remarks? No, said the buyer. He said, not another word. (laughs) Well, said the brother, please give it back. I've changed my mind. I don't want to sell it. And then he hastened back to the abbot and the monastery and begged him with tears to take back his book. But the abbot would not accept it, saying, go in peace, younger brother, I make you a gift of it. And the brother, weeping, said, if you do not take it back, I shall never have any peace. And after that, he asked permission and lived in the temple with Anastasius for the rest of his days. Lived happily ever after or whatever. You know how those things go. So we hear these teachings, and it doesn't mean again to um, use them to judge yourself, but to remember that it is possible for you as a human being to shine in this way, to remember when you've done this. Robert Johnson, the Jungian analyst, says, Curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their being and of their shadow, the unconscious, more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It is more disrupting to find you have a profound nobility of character than it is to find out that you are a bum. <laughs> so, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, O oh, nobly born, the text says, remember who you really are and use these teachings, use this understanding to reawaken that flame of your own goodness, your own heart, and move through the world with virtue and integrity, for it is that which will protect you and which will save the world from so much sorrow and suffering. If you think about all the things going on, this is the place, the ground, where we have to start. So let's just sit for a minute. Let yourself reflect as you're quiet on someone that you know who who has a great deal of integrity, who really speaks the truth and acts with integrity, and what it feels like around them. And then sense that same spirit in yourself. You know, sometimes it's all we can do on our best day, just not to harm ourselves or somebody else. It's really true. It's like this spiral. And sometimes it's more kingly and queenly. You feel like you're touched by the gods and so forth. These are reminders. They're practices. They're not used to judge yourself or another. They're really used to carry the spirit of your soul, of your heart, more fully in this world. So let's end with a little chant and then go out into the summer evening. In um, the chant tonight, in India, when you meet a person, you put your hands together and greet them with a little bow and say, Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are behind all those, you know, clothes and personality and all that stuff. Um, and the root of the word Namaste is the word in Sanskrit or Pali, Namo, which means to bow to or honor. So I'd like us to chant namo nine times, and as we do, you can imagine who it is you'd like to bow to, or what that's beautiful in the world that you would bow to, or those who are struggling, that you want to bow to their struggle in some way, offer your respect. Um, We'll chant and then end for the evening.
1: Namo Namo Nam.
0: ahead, may your Buddha nature and the beauty of your heart in thought and word indeed shine in your life. Thank you very much.